Alright, and welcome to the Rory's Nitro podcast, the show that rips up the buy rates and TV ratings and declares our own winner in some of pro wrestling's biggest head-to-head battles. I'm your host, Lee Carlos Cunningham, and this is episode 22, focusing on the November 1995 pay-per-views, WCW's World War III, and the WWF's Survivor Series 1995. Before we get started on the shows, just a quick reminder that you can find us as ever on Twitter, on Facebook, and on 4CR, as well as downloading the show directly on iTunes. If you are listening to us on iTunes and you've not yet left us a five-star review, for shame, if you have left us a five-star review, I request that you go and find somebody else's phone and do it all over again. Those of you that are following on Twitter now and haven't reached out and haven't messaged, do get in touch because at this stage I will still reply to every tweet until I become about as famous as whoever finished third in I'm a Celebrity back in 2009, I will attempt to reply to everyone that messages me. Those of you that are following on Twitter and Facebook, you'll see that recently I've made some investments towards future episodes of the show, namely bringing in DVD copies of No Holds Barred, Reddit to Rumble and Suburban Commando. I was able to do this by the miracle of coming back from holidays not completely broke, and for those of you wondering how I managed to do that, I'll tell you. There's this little trick uh, known as offering to pay for a meal and a pint or a round of drinks about five seconds after Mark's already done so, so pretty much the whole Belfast trip. Um, Save my money, thanks very much, Mark. And just to rub salt in the wounds, I'm sat here recording the podcast, wearing a shirt bought by Mark, eating a Turkish delight bought by Mark, while playing with two Hasbros I brought back from Mark. And now it's time to get on with the show. The World War III pay-per-view was brought to us from WCW on November 26th in the Norfolk Scope in Norfolk, Virginia. A little arena some of you may have heard of um, due to DX invading Nitro in that arena. Uh, drew a 0.43 buy rate with a gate of about 12,000. Survivor Series 95 came to us from the US Air Arena in Landover, Maryland, drew a 0.57 buy rate and a crowd of about 14,500. So Survivor Series took the Duke in the buy rate and in the attendance figures. Let's see if they could do the same with our ratings. Let's get on with the show. The coin's been flipped and we're actually heading to WCW first, so we're going to go there now. With the biggest battle royal in wrestling history, World Championship Wrestling wages World War III. 60 international superstars from around the globe prepare for combat like the wrestling world has never seen before. Let's get ready It's all out war. The show itself opens up with a pretty decent hype video to get us in the mood for the big battle royal with the title on the line. Uh, the commentary team for the evening are Tony Schiavone and Bobby the Brain Heenan. Tony Schiavone picks Hulk Hogan for his winner for the battle royal, and Bobby the Brain Heenan picks either the Macho Man or the Giant to be the winner. We then get started with a very strange piece of business. Many of you have probably heard um, of this, but may not have heard the whole thing, so I'm going to include it here for you in a moment. But it's basically Mean Gene Oakland interviewing Hulk Hogan, the Macho Man Randy Savage and Sting um, who talk about having a unified alliance of some sort here and Hulk Hogan sheds his black gear to reveal that he's still in the red and yellow whilst um, taking some pot shots at a few other things here so take a listen Um, apologies for the poor sound quality this was the only clip of this I could find online at short notice um, but it's too good to miss so I'll pop it in here for you now 
because tonight 60 men are going to be fine for the title of WCW Heavyweight Champion of the World, Macho Man Randy Savage Sting. Hulk Hogan, a lot of people are picking you to regain your title tonight. And it's capacity, crowd no exception here in Norfolk. Well, you know something mean, Gene? Out of something bad always comes something good, brother. Because these Hulkamaniacs have stood with me with the training, the prayers, and the vitamins. I took a walk to the dark side, brother. If I would have taken the final step, maybe I wouldn't be here with my two best friends tonight. But, brother, now I know who my friends are, man. And tonight, the dark side of Hulk Hogan, brother, will be no more, brother. The dark side of Hulk Hogan is over, brother. That's a deal. And just like everybody else, man, we're gonna burn that dungeon of doom, brother. I will never ever again question Sting. Macho Man's my friend. Sting has stuck by me since day one. I wanna be your friend forever. I don't care what your trip is with Lex Luger. I will always be your friend, Stinger. I'm with it! The Hulkster! Yes! That is WCW, and the black is gone for good. Right, much? When you're wrong, you're wrong, and I was wrong, and I just want to say I'm sorry. You're the coolest dude in the world. I think we got a little fire going here. Can somebody get this out, Hulk? I get the point. Well, you know something, me, Gene? Something that's really funny that we've been laughing about in the back is the fact that everybody said the macho man has a legitimate injury brother what a joke the macho man's arm is perfect that was just a plan because between the stinger macho man and hulk hogan the wcw title brother is gonna be with the hulkamaniacs just like the people you can hear him hulk listen to him you know something brother observe this brother this is what we call a rag sheet, brother. They say the Giant is going to win the match. They said Macho Man was hurt. This is like this is like a dinosaur compared to the internet, brother. The internet's got the scoops. We're going to steal the belt, the Stinger, Macho Man, and Hulk Hogan together. The Macho Man's not hurt. And what are you Hulkamaniacs going to do when the Stinger... Macho Man and Hulk Hogan run wild on you guys. What are they going to do? I have no idea. But I know one thing. The Black has been burned. Hulk Hogan back in the yellow red of Hulkamania along with Sting and the Macho Man Randy Savage. Up next time in Dallas Page and Johnny B. Bad right now. Let's give you a complete rundown of the past between these two. So yeah, there you have it, Hulk Hogan um, throwing Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer into a can of fire live on pay-per-view. Just let that sink in for a moment, because the sentence itself is surreal enough without much of a follow-up, um, but essentially Hogan's making people that have never heard of Dave Meltzer and the Observer aware that there is ways of reading about him out there, um, which I don't think was his intended purpose when starting this promo. But we won't stay here for too long, because we do get into the first match, as you may have heard Mean Gene throw to there, and it is going to be Diamond Dallas Page up against Johnny B. Bad. 
Johnny D. B-Bad, sorry, is defending his television title up against Diamond Dallas Page in what I believe is now the first three-time match of the podcast. And on the other side of the fence, DDP's manager, Kimberly, a.k.a. the Diamond Doll, has decided to put herself up for grabs in the match. Not forced to, not coerced to, but not overly happy with DDP, so she's put herself up for grabs. Um, I'd like to think that if my wife ever tired of me and wanted to separate, she wouldn't put herself on the line at a sporting event of any nature. She would just have a conversation conversation with me but hey wrestling is what wrestling is please don't leave me jess also, as we go into the rundown of the match here, do forgive me, um, as some of you may have read on Twitter already, I watched World War III quite a while back and then had my internet go on me before I went on holiday, so these notes are about a month old. Now, if I stutter or lose my train of thought or don't understand my own writing, apologies in advance, my memory's probably not going to have everything here stored. DDP was also in possession of Johnny B. Bad's Bad Blaster, so Johnny B. Bad makes his entrance with a coat that can shoot fireworks out of the sleeves. It's actually pretty cool, um, so no knocking on that at all. Um, and when the match begins, they lock up, and a hard chest slap by DDP really got a nice sound elicited there. They lock back up, and it gets a little bit more vicious, and they end up actually rolling out of the ring still locked up, and they begin to exchange for, uh, blows on the floor before Johnny B. Bad sends DDP into the ring post. Uh, coming back into the ring, Johnny B. Bad hits a nice crossbody and a Samoan drop for a two count before going into a sloppy headlock takedown. They then go into some mat wrestling for a little bit and end up trading hair takedowns before DDP bails out the ring Johnny B. Bad makes like he's going to do a dive to the outside but actually does the 619 fake DDP sort of turns away to avoid it and then when he turns back around gets hit by a plancher um, DDP on the outside uses a diamond doll to shield himself against Johnny B. Bad and then throws her into Johnny B. Bad and nails him before getting back up Johnny B. Bad hits a move called a reverse pancake. He picks DDP up like it's going to be a tombstone pile driver before turning it into a slam, basically falling um, in the tombstone position but under DDP's back. It's a bit of a strange one, that. Uh, he then hits a spinning lariat for a two count before running um, running into the, into the corner, but DDP avoids it and he hits his shoulder into the post. He does fight back pretty quickly though, hitting an inverted atomic drop and a really huge clothesline, uh, which the Diamond Doll gives a 10 for. A 10 plus actually, I tell a lie. He hits a really nice falling powerbomb, which gets a two count, before DDP gets back on the offense and tries the cheating pin with his feet on the ropes, which also gets a two count. A tilt-a-whirl side slam, which gets a two count, and then Johnny B. Bad fires back with a crucifix also for a two count, before hitting a spinning head scissors. Bad comes off the ropes with a springboard splash, but DDP gets his knees up, then hits a nice gut buster for a two count before Johnny B. Bad reverses a tombstone attempt by DDP into a tombstone of his own, which also only gets a two count. So he goes to the apron and does a somersault over the ropes with a leg drop, and that gets a three count on DDP in what was a pretty solid opener, to be honest here. There were some really good moves, some good back and forth action. Uh, it wasn't too slow. Um, we did have a bit of a strange aftermath to the match though where Kimberly seemed reluctant at first to go to Johnny B. Bad but then decided she was happy to go to him. It didn't make a lot of sense. Um, what they were trying to get over was that she was sick of DDP so she was going to go with um, Johnny B. Bad. But by the ending of the match she almost looked like she didn't expect DDP to win um, and was shocked. And then she decided actually that's what I wanted after all and went to him. But it just came across a bit strange. We then get Mean Gene shilling his hotline, and he tells us to phone up to hear more about the WWF steroid scandal. Um, 
and to find out who's still involved with that, which I think is a little bit cheeky considering his best mate is pretty much the one that landed them in the ship with this steroid uh, scandal, and WCW have got no problem with all these guys being roided up over there, so sort of a little bit poor taste for Mean Gene, but if you've been following the show and his WCW antics so far, you know that I've not been too impressed with him since he jumped fence anyway. We then go into a match where I posted a very brief uh, video clip on Twitter last month when I was watching it that most of you saw, and it's going to be the tape fist match, Big Bubba Rogers, aka the Big Boss Man, up against Hacksaw Fuckwit Jim Duggan. Um... I don't know where to start on this. This was painful to watch. It was painful to write about, and it's going to be painful to go through. So my apologies. Um, on the way to the ring, Duggan comes out and nails the boss man. Um, hits him with a 2 by 4 which he has over his shoulder on a strap. He looks like even more of a fucking moron. <sighs> Just can't do it. Um, his belly's getting a little bit bigger here, too. He needs to go to the singlet rather than just the, the tights. Um, we get the usual Duggan routine, the hose, the USA chants, um, stalling, and the use of the 2x4. Inside the ring, it's basically just punches and clotheslines from both guys. Um, unfortunately, the crowd does play along and give us some hacksaw chants. 1995 WCW audience for shame. We get pretty much the one cool spot of the match, and that's where Duggan puts Bubba's head between two of the three um, two ring posts that from adjoining rings with the three rings and punches the head while it's stuck in between. Um, Hacksaw Jim Duggan is at this point still going for punches, for stomps, for kicks, using the 2x4, whatever, whatever it is. And he reminds me of a singer on stage who doesn't actually sing anything, just points the microphone to the crowd and lets you do all the work. Come on, mate, I didn't pay $100 to come and sing the song myself. Give me a show. That's what I think when I watch Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Like, you just want... He's, a, he's the epitome of a house show performer for me. He'll get the crowd fired up, but if you're watching on TV, you want to pull your eyes out. They do swap from one ring to the other as well. Um, it's just a bit more stalling, really. Um, Bubba gets more tape to go on his wrist. Like, who the fuck cares? It's not doing anything. Putting more tape on your wrist isn't going to be more devastating, despite what Tony Schiavone will try and make us believe. The punches then ceased for just a moment when Hacksaw and Big Bubba trade hammerlocks. Oh, please make it stop. I really think if you've listened to every show of this podcast, then you've had your money's worth. You should have to go and watch this match and share my misery here. Um, report back to me when you've done so, please. We then get the spot that I put up on Twitter earlier where Hacksaw's um, caught in the ropes and Bubba runs the ropes. Hacksaw just sticks his fist up, doesn't swing it, just holds it there for Bubba to run into and that is somehow also devastating. What the fuck is going on here? Um, we then get VK Wall Street to come out because we needed more boring wrestlers. And this allows the referee to be distracted, Bubba to pull out a chain, nail Hacksaw with the chain, and this puts Hacksaw down mercifully for the 10 count, allowing Big Bubba to get the win by KO. Um, and this is going to rate on our Hammerlock scale, if you hadn't already guessed it. Trading Hammerlocks was a bit of foreboding there. It's going to go a solid 8 out of 10, 8 Hammerlocks out of 10. This was awful. The only reason this didn't get a 9 or a 10 is because I actually saw Hacksaw Jim Duggan job on pay-per-view after God knows how many years is this was just complete shit uh, after the match the commentators do kindly tell us that we can chat to wcw wrestlers on CompuServe. so nicely dating this show we then go to mean gene oakland with rick flair cutting a promo on sting 
Um, Hogan, Savage, Sting, all in one match. He's going to beat them all. Um, really good promo, Ric Flair. It's what you'd expect. We then go to a women's tag team match, which um, is going to be... Oh, there's actually one of these on each show this month, which was a little weird, and they're Japanese women, um, most of who I don't know, so I do apologize for butchering these names and not really knowing much about them, but I'll go through it here anyway. It's going to be Suzuki and Ozaki up against Bull Nakano and Hokuto, and also Bobby Heenan and, T- and Tony Schiavone didn't know a lot about these girls either, so they did the trick of getting Mike Tanay in for the commentary, which really helped. He did give us a bit of background about them and help us along the way. Bull Nakano starts out... And her and Hokuto, uh, her partner, get a bunch of offense early, swapping in and out, some good hair throws on their faces, and holding one of the girls' hands out to mock a tag to a partner, which got some really good heel heat and helped the crowd decide who they were meant to cheer. Bull Nakano looked like a bit of a monster in this as well, dragging one of the faces around by the hair while the other kicked her, and she just completely no-sold it. Looked like an absolute boss. Uh, Hit a nice choke bomb as well, which was really cool. The faces do get a little bit of quick offense on the heels, but it's nothing major. It's it's mostly quick, um, light moves. They do at one point get a stereo Boston Crab each, which was pretty cool, uh, but it doesn't last too long before it's broken up. Paul Nakano hits one of the baby faces with a nice power bomb, but then goes up top for a moonsault and misses it, impressive nonetheless, before the two faces each land two coup de grace foot stomps off the top rope, which only garners a two count on Paul Nakano. The faces fire back with stereo ranas, stereo top rope clotheslines, which only get two counts for them, before the heels take over and go to the finishing sequence with some really nice suplexes, a half Nelson, a nasty looking German suplex, um, a missile drop kick from Hokuto under both competitors, before Bull Nick, uh, a doomsday device as well, which looked really sick, before Bull Nakano finished it off with a top rope top rope leg drop for what was actually a pretty decent match. I feel bad that I don't really know much about the competitors in it and don't have much background because what I watched was actually quite enjoyable and if they'd actually built a women's division based on these kind of wrestlers with a couple of um, American names built in it could have really been something. We go back to another Mean Gene uh, Oakland interview with Jimmy Hart and Lex Luger and he basically just opens up with Jimmy Hart you little twerp and I just I don't understand it but it's a pretty basic promo Lex Luger was never much um, to to speak about on the mic but it serves its purpose before we get to the next match which is Chris Benoit up against Kenzuki Suzaki um, defending his United States title um, Kenzuki Suzaki that is and both of them are sporting some mighty fine mullets Benoit goes onto the attack early with some really stiff chops Um, it looks nice uh, before Kenzuki Suzaki fires back uh, they go to a test of strength before Suzaki hits a, a couple of slams as one girl screams, Get up, Chris! Get up, Chris! in the front rows over and over again. Uh, Suzaki then goes to a chin lock and slows the pace right down before hitting a huge press slam. Um, Benoit flips out of a Boston Crab attempt and hits a suicide dive. And while he's down on the inside, we on the outside, sorry, we get the same girl screaming, Get up, Chris! again and again. Uh, we get back in the ring and he puts on a head scissor hold and we have Sonny Ono on commentary now as well. Suzaki goes back to the body slam a couple more times before Benoit fires back, hits a couple of German suplexes but has his third one blocked. We have a spot repeated from the first match where Suzaki goes for a tombstone but Benoit reverses it into a tombstone of his own then hits a huge diving headbutt but only garners a two count. A top rope Hurricane Rana which also gets a two count 
Suzaki then hits a power bomb and goes into a submission hold, but Benoit gets the ropes. Suzaki then no sells a clothesline from Benoit before hitting one of his own, and sort of a side Michinoku driver type move, which gets him the three count and he retains his United States title. Not a bad match. Benoit was certainly the more impressive of the two, and I think they went the wrong way with the result, but not knowing the full background of these guys. I've seen Benoit from his start, but I don't know much about Suzaki, so there may have been a bigger picture to come here, but from just watching this in isolation, Benoit certainly was the star of this one. We then go to another Mean Gene interview with Kevin Sullivan, Jimmy Hart and the Giant, and Gene admonishes the Giant early on, telling him his father would be ashamed of him. Kevin Sullivan fires back and informs Gene that they're not just part of the Battle Royal, they're going to win the whole thing. Giant then tells us, roses are red, violets are blue, and I'm going to kick your butt to Kalamanzu. So, who knew the Big Show was such a wordsmith? We might get him on for one of the, the ending tracks at some point, I think. Really, this was, it was pretty hokey and pretty awful, though, and a sign of the sort of this is peak Dungeon of Doom here in 95. Um, we then get Tony Schiavone shilling Star Starcade next month. Went into Kevin Sullivan mode, then I went to say Starcade. Um, actually, that might not have been Kevin Sullivan, that might have been part Scouse, but I'll, I'll let you be the judge of that. We then go into a hype video for Macho Man and Lex Luger, and the idiocy of this, the video is telling us that Savage really is injured. Um, I'm still scratching my head at that one. If you heard the promo at the start of the show, you'll know why. Uh, not sure what's going on here. We then get Gene with the Macho Man, Randy Savage, and he's, Macho gives us a brilliant line, what it is is what it is. Classic Macho Man there. He then flips back on the video and tells us his arm is a million percent. That's more than a thousand. Well, yes, yes it is. And just as I predicted, I can't read my notes. Of course he said that's more than a hundred, but you know what? It looked like four zeros to me at the time. From here, we do go into the Savage and Lex Luger match. Uh, Macho Man with a variety of different chokeholds at the start. Uh, and his arm is bandaged. What is going on? Hulk tells us it's not injured. The hype video tells us it is. Macho tells us it's not. And then he comes out with it bandaged. Oh, it's too much. Um, Bobby Heenan then addresses the elephant in the room, which is the bandage. And he just says, what's going on here? He basically asks the question I'm asking. Um... Anyway, back in the ring, Savage goes on to the attack with a Boston Crab before they go brawling on the outside. And Lex Luger does some classic screaming on Macho Man kicks. Pretty early on, Macho hits his signature top rope elbow, but Jimmy Hart distracts the referee before they go back outside to brawl some more. We're told that Lex and Sting will be a tag team on an upcoming Nitro, so there we're going to advance that storyline. I thought it was wrapped up earlier in the show with um, Sting coming out with Hogan and Much, but obviously not. Lex Luger then puts Macho Man in the torture rack on the floor. Holds it till about the seven count before letting go and rolling into the ring to break the count. Comes back out, throws the Macho Man in and locks him into an arm bar, which then has the referee lift Macho Man's arm, drops three times to the mat and Lex Luger wins. He then stays on the arm, goes to attack it, but Sting comes out, has a quick word to Lex Luger and Lex lets go and leaves. So this is really confusing um, for two reasons. One, the Sting Lex Luger uh, storyline, but that's okay because it's building interest for a payoff down the line, I assume. And also Macho Man's arm. Will somebody please tell me if it's injured or not? Because I still have no idea. We then go to a hype video for the Sting vs. Ric Flair match, which points out the obvious, um, it doesn't actually say it, but if you watch it, it does. Um, 
that this storyline made no sense because if Ric Flair was in cahoots with Brian Pillman and Arn Anderson, why the hell did they beat him up and have so many matches against each other in the last month? Really makes no sense. But anyway, um, Sting and Flair go nose to nose at the start before Sting gets in the first shot. Ric Flair trying to avoid the Stinger swaps rings um, and Sting just follows him and stays on him. Big press slam, which sees Flair then beg off, um, hits an eye poke and some chops before Sting basically no sells and comes back. Ric Flair bails again and we see Colonel Robert Parker and Sensational Sherry at ringside making out. Uh, not ringside as in front row, but in the aisle. So there you go. Sting no-sells some more chops, Flair bails again, it's following a bit of a pattern here, um, they get back in and Sting kips up off some hair takedowns, um, hits another press slam before they go back to the outside for a bit more brawling, Sting misses a stinger splash and hits the rail before they go back in and Flair hits a low blow and gets on Sting's leg. Hits a figure four but Sting reverses it, Sting comes up with a backslide for a two count, Ric Flair and referee Nick Patrick exchange some, exchange some shoves before switching rings again, press slam again, and a couple of sting clotheslines before Ric Flair goes back to the eye rake. He goes up top, but as you know, when Ric Flair goes up top, it doesn't end well. Um, takes his patented Irish whip into the corner before then coming back into the ring, standing up and taking his Ric Flair front bump. Uh, sting hits a nice 10 punch in the corner hitting a superplex and then locking in the Scorpion Deathlock for the win. Not a bad match, but not one of their best in my opinion. It was very formulaic. Um, I know a lot of Flair's matches are, but this one, it repeated spots too frequently for my liking, but the action was good, the story of the match was fine, and it was quick pace, so not too bad really. We then get a hype video for the title issues surrounding the main event and how we got here, uh, recapping some of the stuff from the last pay-per-view show we did. Um, and Mean Gene interviews Hulk Hogan, who gets a very mixed response, um, typical Hogan promo about how he's going to win the match. We've then got three different commentary teams, one for each ring, um, and it's going to be Chevy Cruz and Larry Zabisco, uh, Eric Bischoff and Dusty Rhodes, and of course Heenan and Shivani on the other ring. Um, we've got a 60-man battle royal for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. So the first thing I'll do is just very quickly run through the list of competitors for everyone. We've got in this match Arn Anderson, Alex Wright, Brian Nobbs, Barrio Brother Ricky, Dave Taylor, Scott Armstrong, Sting, Jumping Joey Mags, Pistol Pete, uh, Pistol Pez Watley, Disco Inferno, Meng, Stevie Ray, Mark Starr, Buddy Lee Parker, Lieutenant James Earl, Lex Luger, Eddie Guerrero, The Cobra, Giant, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, Canyon, Bobby Walker, Bobby Eaton, um, Chris Benoit, Macho Man Randy Savage, Buff Bagwell, The Yeti, Kurosawa, Hugh Morris, The Zodiac, VK Wall Street, DDP, Scott Norton, Brian Pillman, Sergeant Craig the Pitbull Pittman, uh, The One Man Gang, Super Assassin 2, Jerry Lynn, Buck, Kenzo Sasaki, Mike Winter, The Shark, Steve Armstrong, Hawk, Dave Sullivan, Scotty Riggs, Johnny B. Bad, um, Big Train Bart, Steve Regal, Dick Slater, Max Muscle, Super Assassin 1, Barrio Brother Vito, Kevin Sullivan, uh, Sags, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Booker T, Big Bubba Rogers, Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan. So that was a bit of a mouthful, but a uh, list of competitors. There's quite a few big names in there. There are a few jobbers sprinkled out, but to get 60 men into a battle royal, and really, there's probably only about six or seven people I haven't heard of in there. That's not too bad going, if I'm being honest.
We start off with a high shot of the three rings with the 60 men in it, and it is a really awesome visual. Props to WCW for that. Um, their production guys did get the occasional thing right, and this was one of them. Um, the three split cameras um, on the screen, not so much. Having my screen split into three, and it's not even full screen. I know you can't really do a full screen for three unless one was wider than the other two or, or what have you. But it's three small boxes inside my TV. I've got a massive widescreen TV nowadays, um, as most people have got pretty big TVs now with, with the advancement in technology. But I think back in the TV I had in 1995, this would have been unwatchable. So I don't know what they were thinking there. As you can imagine, with three simultaneous battle royals going on, it's pretty much just brawling all around, and a play-by-play -play here is going to be pretty impossible. Um, so I'll just sort of repeat the bits that I actually caught while watching it. The Yeti went out early. As you can probably tell, that experiment didn't last very long. Um, we get beatdowns on the Macho Man and heels on Hulk Hogan as well before Nobbs sends out Mark Starr. We, we're just getting the jobbers cleared here pretty early. Mr. Wonderful and Lex Luger brawl for a little bit. Um, yeah, look, <laughs> I'm not going to repeat my note there because I don't understand the context anymore and it's a bit rude, so apologies for that. Uh, a real problem with the match here is that people are being eliminated and the commentators don't really sell it as a big deal. Some of them don't even get mentioned, so that makes it a little bit dull. You're just sort of watching people brawl. Um, Duggan saves Hulk Hogan from being eliminated like the fucking idiot that he is. Eddie Guerrero um, drop kicks somebody out. I didn't see who it was. Followed by Nobbs and Booker T going out. Um, we're told that we'll go to one ring when each of them are down to 10 or so. Um, so that's confusing. Wall Street's out, Norton's out, um, there's 10 ring, ten in the other ring now, so they're all meant to be in one ring. Um, 30 in one ring is much better than 20 in each in three rings. Um, the idea sounded a lot better and a lot more exciting to me than it's, it's come about in execution, but I still think with today's technology, it probably could have been done a little bit better. The one-man gang, Kevin Sullivan and the Zodiac, choke Hulk Hogan for a while. Duggan eliminates Big Bubba, who then pulls Duggan out. Hawk tosses out the Disco Inferno. Pittman tosses out Dave Taylor. Um, Stevie Ray's out somehow. Um, Lex Luger rolls to the outside and Macho Man chases him into another ring. Regal gets eliminated. Uh, Johnny B. Bad and DDP take each other out. Um, Giant tosses out Pittman. Chris Benoit ends up out. We end up with 16 left. Kurosawa then goes out. Meng goes out. Uh, the Zodiac goes out, I think. Uh, does he? Yes, he does. No, he doesn't. Yeah, yes, he does. Yeah, he is really out. Um, I haven't seen Kevin Sullivan. I'm not sure if he's still in it at this point, but they haven't talked about him being out, which is strange. Hawk tosses out Brian Pillman, who then pulls out Kenzuki Sasaki. Triple, uh, Triple H. Hulk Hogan tosses out Hawk. Um, Hulk Hogan then tosses out Paul Orndorff. Eddie Guerrero hits a nice missile drop kick to Arn Anderson. Ric Flair puts a figure four on Eddie Guerrero. Um, and then the Scorpion Deathlock by Sting on Arn Anderson. Arn Anderson after this spine busters Eddie Guerrero. Um, and Eddie Guerrero goes out off screen. Um, it's at this point I realize Kevin Sullivan is gone and no one mentioned it. So what the fuck's going on there? Um, giant clotheslines Macho Man. And um, we get a spike pile driver on Sting. 
but it's blocked um, and Sting ends up slingshotting Arn Anderson into Ric Flair who was climbing the, the ropes to do it and that knocks Flair out. Sting tosses out Arn Anderson and we go to our final six which is the one-man gang strangely enough Lex Luger, the Giant, the Macho Man, Hulk Hogan and Sting. Hulk, uh, Sting and Lex Luger, sorry, double-team the Giant, while Hulk Hogan sneaks up and tosses out all three of them. So, so much friends for the end, hey, Hulkster. Macho Man tosses the one-man gang out off-screen, and they announce that Macho Man um, is the winner before the bell for some reason. While this is happening, Hulk Hogan is actually on the floor slamming the Giant um, as they're announcing that Macho Man's won, and we get the bell, and he runs in to say that he hasn't been eliminated. Um, He's protesting this big time, but in a really pantomime type of way, trying to like, he's got the referee stood next to him, listening to him, and he does the whole run to the ropes, kick his foot under it, then do the big head shake and signal the tossing over the top rope, like he couldn't just explain that to him in words. It's really, really silly looking stuff. And then Mean Gene comes in to help clean, clean up what's going on here. We at home get the benefit of a replay that shows Hulk Hogan actually wasn't eliminated and he's right. Um, but this to me is just the epitome of Hulk Hogan being the absolute prick that he is. Uh, it's easily our dick move of the week. In a horrible moment, Savage is winning his first WCW title and just like when he won his first WWF one, Hulk's there to steal the limelight and overlap the moment. Apparently Savage was meant to win this all along, but Hulk changed the finish to not go out, uh, to not be eliminated on the fly. I've heard conflicting reports as to whether it was before the match or during the match, but whichever way it was, Hulk Hogan, this was an absolute prick move. It's no wonder Macho Man wrote an awesome song dissing you. Huh. Hulk Hogan, Hollywood officer, whatever they call you, I'm coming after you, you coward. Yeah. 
Sorry for that digression, but it really had to be done. Um, so basically, Hogan steals Macho Man's thunder. Um, Savage ends up getting booed because of it. Um, Hogan's just really ruined it here. Um, Savage says that he didn't see. Um, Hulk says to ask the crowd. Um, Gene says he saw it. Um, Savage says he's going to have to see the film. Hulk Hogan mocks the Macho Man's what it is, is what it is, but then says congrats, but watch the film because I deserve a shot at my belt. Um, just a really shit ending. Just absolutely steals Savage's thunder, makes a mockery of his big title win, and that's how the pay-per-view ends and the show goes to credits. So a really sort of damp ending to something I was excited for and really looking forward to. Anyway, that will do it for World War Three. so let's head over to Survivor Series and see if the WWF fared any better this month. One man is the most honoured athlete in Federation history. The excellence of execution is going to bring you down. The other, the leader of the new generation. We're going to find out who's the best. Their previous encounters were marred by injustice. Look at this carnage. It's like a back alley gang fight. But this time, the laws have changed. The match can only terminate in a pinfall or submission. The champion. I'm going to take care of you once and for all. The challenger. Diesel. The truck stops here. The title. Your one-year reign's coming to end. The Survivor Series, November 19th, live on Pay-Per-View. I don't like your odds. Survivor Series 95 opens up with Howard Finkel announcing Mr. Perfect to the live crowd, coming out to join the commentary team. And then we get a Brett Diesel video package. Um, and we get told that Brett's the only man to ever have held all uh, three titles in the WWF two times. And Diesel's the only man to, ever, to have ever won them all within a one-year period. And the commentary team is made up of Mr. Perfect, Vince McMahon, and JR, which is actually pretty cool. I'm excited for that. And we go to our opening contest, which is the underdogs of Marty Jannetty, Barry Horowitz, Bob Holly, and Hakushi, up against the Body Donners, consisting of Skip, Rad Radford, Dr. Tom Pritchard and the 123 Kid. And this is a typical 1995 roster here with some real dross mixed in with a couple of little bits of quality. Um, Razor comes out actually and goes after the 123 Kid, leading back to the angle we've talked about previously with the kid turning on him. Uh, but the referees get in the way and send Razor to the back. Um, officials as well, Jerry Briscoe was spotted in there along with a few others. Um, Tom Pritchard and Marty Jannetty start the match with Marty Jannetty uh, ended up in the heel corner but fights his way out of it pretty quick uh, it's a good quick pace to start with as well Holly and Rad Radford get in next and Holly hits a really nice Hurricane Rana and Rad Radford goes for one of his own but Holly blocks it with a powerbomb Hakushi comes in for the baby faces but gets hit with a spine buster from Rad Radford which JR actually correctly calls which is a nice change for this era of WWF and the kid comes in next and hits a nice splash off the top rope for a two count and hits his trademark X-Park kicks in the corner, the gut kicks and the spin kick. Skip comes in next and hits a suplex followed by a back suplex and then another one which is reversed 
Bob Holly comes in and hits three clothesline. And Mr. Perfect says, not bad for a two-sport athlete, but me, I'm an all-sport athlete. Not a bad line there. Putting himself over the other guys, though, which is going to be a little bit of a problem at some point. Holly hits a nice crossbody off the top rope, which gets him a three count, and Dr. Tom Pritchard is eliminated early before Skip comes in and rolls up Holly for another three count immediately, putting us down to three on three. Hakushi comes in and hits a really nice leg sweep and sort of a reverse enziguri um, mule, mule kick type move, a slam, and goes up for a Vader bomb, but it's blocked with knees. Um, and Skip hits a really nice top rope Rana, but then Flair flops afterwards, which is a little bit weird. Um, the crowd are going nuts for Barry Horowitz on the apron, which I always find strange. Kid comes in next, but does get nailed by a Hakushi China handspring elbow and a forearm, and a really hot crowd, actually. They're getting into the action here, which is, is another good opener, so both shows have got that in common now. And we get a top rope shoulder block by a two count, and a classic Vince McMahon, he got him, he got him, no he didn't, he didn't get him. Uh, love that line. Um, we get a springboard splash that misses, and that allows Rad Radford to get in, um, but the kid gets in the ring as well and spin kicks the back of Hakushi's head from behind which allows a three count and Hakushi is out bringing in Barry Horowitz to a big pop. He nails some elbows on the kid who gets out immediately and Rad Radford gets back in who hits a nice gut wrench suplex for a two count before Barry Horowitz fights back with a jawbreaker for a two count of his own. Um, Rad Radford hits a few different offensive moves on Barry Horowitz, but picks him up off the pin a couple of times, and it turns out Skip's on the apron telling him not to pin him, not to finish him off yet. Um, Rad Radford then begins doing push-ups, and this allows Barry Horowitz to simply roll him up from the push-up position for a three-count, eliminating Rad Radford and making him the most stupid man of the evening so far. Skip comes in, and him and Barry Horowitz go nose-to-nose, which the crowd doesn't get into as much as they were earlier. Um... Barry Horowitz goes on the offense and hits some elbows and knees before the kid blind tags his way in, hits a knee to the back and the leg for a three count, uh, one of his quick leg drops that is, Barry Horowitz is out and then this brings us a huge Marty chant as they really get behind him here. Marty and Skip go back and forth with a nice series of offense here early before Marty hits his patented rocker dropper and Mr. Perfect goes all inside on us and says that'll break your neck um, and that did at one point break a jobber's neck and that cost the WWF a cool couple of million so there you go. Janetti goes up top but Sonny uh, shakes the ropes and crutches him allowing Skip to climb up uh, but Marty Janetti basically gets a hold of Skip from the top and power bombs him off the top rope in a really cool move getting the three count and bringing his down to Marty Janetti versus the one two three kid. The kid gets in and hits a nice spin kick and then a top rope leg drop of his own which was really nice for a two count before hitting a cool drop kick in the corner and going for a somersault leg drop off the top but this time he misses. Marty Jannetty hits a nice drop kick for a two count before Psycho Sid and Ted DiBiase come down the aisle. Marty Jannetty hits a nice elbow and a rocker dropper, but the kid gets his foot on the ropes. This allows Ted DiBiase to climb on the apron and make the distraction, and Sid clotheslines Marty from the apron, allowing the 1-2-3 kid to pick up the 1-2-3, uh, the funnily enough, in a pretty decent opener, so not too bad here at all. And Sid then gets in the ring and lifts the kid up high for some really huge heel heat here. We have a look backstage and we see Razor Ramon is going nuts, tearing apart a locker room. Um, and then Todd Pettengale is interviewing Yokozuna, Jim Cornette, Owen Hart, and Dean Douglas. They basically cut a promo on Ramon, who is their wildcard partner for the wildcard match later on, telling him to get his head in the game, and rightfully so. 
So in addition to both shows having hot openers, we now go to our Women's Survivor Series match. And as I mentioned in the previous show, um, this is another thing they have in common with a lot of women we don't really know, mostly from Japan, on different teams. So it's going to be Bertha Faye, Aja Kong, Wantabi, and Lioness Asuka, not to be confused with the current day Asuka, up against a team of Alondra Blaze, Kyoko Inoki, Sayu Hagasaki, and... Oh, I can't even read my own writing anymore. Asiri. Um, so let's see what we can get out of this one. Linus Asuka starts us off with a big spin kick and a giant swing on Asiri before Alandra Blaze comes in and hits a slam. And then Asiri in and hits a sky twister press off the top. Um, hard to explain what this is, but it was very impressive. A lot of flips and spins. Look a bit like a, a diver's move here. Really cool. Alandra Blaze comes in and hits a German suplex for the three count, getting rid of Asuka. Before Wantabi comes in and Alandra Blaze cross bodies off the top to the outside. Hagas Hasegawa with some cool suplexes. Wantabi hits a sitting splash off the top. Aja in and Hasegawa hits a six suplex from a rock bottom position. Aja then hits a fold up suplex for a three count, eliminating Hasegawa. Asiri comes in, but is spla splashed off the second rope for a three count, and she's gone. And Noe comes in, but uh, Aja sits on her for the sunset flipper count uh, attempt for a three count, which brings us down to Alandra Blaze up against Bertha Faye, Aja Kong, and Wantabi. All three attack Blaze straight away. Um, we get a snap suplex and the botch of the night as Kyoto calls for a three, but then changes his mind instantly to two. Um, we then get a pile driver for a three count by Alantra Blaze and Wantubby is out, leading me to think the previous uh, move was meant to be a three count and Mike Kyoto just got it badly wrong. The heels collide, um, miscommunication as Alantra Blaze gets out of the way and this allows her to hit a sick looking German suplex on Bertha Faye just to be able to hit someone with a German that much bigger than you. Very, very impressive, so nicely done there. Bertha Faye's out. And we're down to Alandra Blaze up against Aja Kong, who has looked like an absolute beast in this match so far. We get a superplex by Aja Kong, and then Alandra Blaze fires back with a Hurricane Rana, which gets her a two count. It's a little bit botchy here and not very smooth, but there is some good heat on Alandra Blaze, and Aja Kong looks like a monster, so it's not too bad. We get a second rope drop kick by Alandra Blaze. We then get a standing moonsault, which gets her a two count. That was pretty cool. Aja Kong fires back with a couple of Ho Train attacks, which gets her a two count. Um, before we get a spinning back fist by Aja Kong to pick up a clean win over Alandra Blaze. Um, unfortunately, the win is then followed by the old Orient Express theme song, um, but that's okay. The match itself was a little bit of a clusterfuck, but going with Aja Kong for the win was definitely a good move um, to build a, a really serious, credible challenger for Alandra Blaze. It's just a shame that the action and then the competitors didn't really do the match justice. The tag match in WCW for me was a little bit stronger, probably because it was less bodies and less eliminations needed, and they could build a little bit more of a story with the monster heels dominating the, the, the sort of quicker faces. They tried to do something very similar here. Unfortunately, with eight of them and seven needed to be pinned, they didn't really get time to build any of them up very well. We then go to Todd Pettengale, who's with the Bill Clinton impersonator we've seen a few times now, and some fireworks go off for an entrance, Bam Bam Bigelow it is, and they all hit the deck in the typical uh, pretty poor comedy fare there. The fireworks for Bam Bam Bigelow signify it is time for our next contest, which will be Bam Bam Bigelow up against the still fairly new Goldust. 
in a funny moment that reflects some of the stuff I've read about this pay-per-view um, in day in not days gone by and years gone by. Um, Mr. Perfect was slated for his commentary effort on the night here. I didn't find him too bad, but the general crux of the argument seemed to be that he didn't know anything about the wrestlers, and this is definitely a moment that probably gave most people that opinion when either Vince or JR asked him, what do you know about gold dust? And his reply was, I don't really know anything about gold dust. Um, not too well. I, I think he was probably trying to say that Goldust is new and he's bizarre and they don't know a lot about him yet, but it just came across like I haven't been watching, so don't ask me. We had an inset Goldust promo during his entrance. Um, not a fan of these, especially the early ones where it's just all movie quotes and long and drawn out. Um, they become more and more sort of... They're not a bunch of movies that I know off by heart the quotes for, so it doesn't really hold my attention if I'm being honest. Goldust, when he does get to the ring, we notice he's still wearing his fabric suit, not his shiny one, the one that really highlights his dick. Um, not a good look here, and I'm so glad he changed the shinier one not too far along. And Goldust, early on here in his character, is wrestling a bit like a gay Jerry Lawler, um, where he'll do a few punches, then bail out the ring. Comes back in, bam bam, nails a couple of punches and a drop kick, and Goldust bails out the ring. Um, just a lot of avoiding and stalling, not very exciting stuff. Um, Goldust misses a clothesline on the outside, but hits a post. But then he immediately no-sells it and just stomps away on bam bam, which was a bit strange. I'm not sure why they did the spot if he wasn't going to acknowledge it. Um, Goldust clotheslines Bam Bam out the ring again, so no ill effects on the arm whatsoever. We get a knee lift and a slam from Goldust, um, then some stomps. Bam Bam fires back with a back suplex before Goldust locks in a chin lock to slow things down. It's been a really lame match so far, and the crowd are not in on this at all. There's no heat, no cheering, um, just really poor stuff. We get Bam Bam coming up with an electric chair drop, drop, another back suplex, and then three clotheslines, which gets him a two count, before Goldust fires back with a bulldog for a three count. Thank God this one's mercifully over. Uh, this one will be the WWF's version of the Hammerlock scale for the evening, and this one only goes to a four out of ten because it was pretty quick and there wasn't a lot to it. Um, certainly not on par with Big Bubba Rogers and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. We go back to the fake Bill Clinton impersonator who's now got Bob Backlund in with him and it's another pretty lame segment if I'm being honest before we go to a recap of the Mabel Undertaker issues uh, which late led to, in kayfabe sense, the Undertaker's face being crushed and necessitated his uh, removal from action for a few weeks. Um, in actual fact, Mabel did crush his uh, face but I don't. it wasn't done on the Raw episode that they used to, to get the injuries over. We're then coming for our next match and it's going to be Jerry Lawler Isaac Yankum DDS, Hunter Hearst Helmsley and Mabel up against The Undertaker, Savio Vega, Henry Godwin and Make a Difference Fatu. My first note here is what a shit lineup. But then I ponder it for just a moment. I think, hang on a minute. Technically, this is The Undertaker, Kane, Triple H and Rikishi. Three huge stars from the Attitude Era and sort of a tier, you know, second tier big star from the Attitude Era. So there's some talent in here, just some really shit characters. Um, we get Undertaker out first, and the darkness covers his face, so we still don't get a look on how this geese is going to look with his facial injury. And when the lights come on and he's in the ring and he lifts his hair back, uh, we see that he's got his classic Phantom of the Opera mask that we all know and love this day uh, on. Early on, Fatu's all over Triple H. 
but it's a little bit weak. Um, I realize he's got an Undertaker shirt on as well, and this makes him look like a real jobber. Um, never mind, Vince McMahon tells us that Fatu is unquestionably making a difference here in the WWF, and this is one of them characters where they had a line in mind and built a whole character off having one line to say. Kind of like when they dressed the anvil up as the Who. Um, really, really poor stuff. Whoever passes this through creative control, probably Vince, needs to have a look at themselves. Henry Godwin comes in next and he's all over Jerry Lawler who tags out to his personal dentist Isaac Yankum. We get a clothesline by Yankum before Hogg fires back with a hip toss, a slam, an elbow and a back suplex. Triple H comes in and hits his lovely high knee before Fatu comes in again and he's all over Jerry the King Lawler. DDS comes back in, hits a slam and a leg drop before Mabel comes in and Savio comes in as well but he's caught in a side slam by Mabel followed by an overhead throw. DDS comes back in and hits a huge drop kick before Triple H comes in and he and Jerry Lawler take turns beating up on Savio Vega. Jerry Lawler hits a pile driver for a two count before Savio Vega fires back. Triple H comes in and Savio hits sort of a rock bottom type move on him. Mr. Perfect calling him Triple H as well on commentary is an interesting note. I think this is the first time I've heard him refer to as Triple H. It's at this point as well I noticed that it wasn't just Savio Vega wearing an Undertaker shirt, or Fatu, sorry, but all three of the faces on Undertaker's team, Hog, Fatu, and Savio, are all wearing Undertaker shirts and look like real marks. Savio Vega no-sells another pile driver and then tags in the Undertaker, and nobody will tag Jerry Lawler. Um, he lifts up and chokes Jerry Lawler, holding him in the air for a while. Undertaker then scoops Lawler up and he's about to hit the tombstone but realises he's got his back to the hard camera so sort of shuffles around a little bit to face the other way. Nails Lawler with the tombstone for the 1, 2 and the 3 eliminating Lawler first from the matchup. DDS comes in first but gets nailed by the huge Undertaker flying clothesline. I really love this in the early to mid 90s. It was a great move. He then hits Isaac Yankum, the future Kane, with a tombstone for a 3 count as well. Uh, sending him out. It's now 4 on 2. Triple H comes in, thinks better of it, gets out the ring and goes to bail, but Godwin's in the aisle holding the slot bucket. This sends Triple H back to the apron. Undertaker goozles him and brings him from the apron into the ring about two-thirds of the way across the ring with a mammoth choke slam for the three count eliminating Triple H and leaving Mabel all alone. Mabel comes in and hits a belly-to-belly -belly suplex on The Undertaker and then a massive leg drop. When The Undertaker sits up, Mabel thinks better of going back at him, bails out of the ring and gets out of there, taking the count out loss. Undertaker's team all survive, four of them still there. Mo gets caught in the ring and he eats a choke slam, uh, which he no-sells by popping straight up and getting out the ring to run off. Um, I'm assuming he got bollocked in the back when he got back there. You all know of the, the infamous moment of Hawk doing the same thing to, a, I think, a choke slam and a frog splash by Kane and RVD when the LOD were in line for a return. It is just like that. We then get a Bret Hart promo um, referencing Wayne Gretzky asking himself if he's still the best every day um, before we then go to a Big Daddy Cool Diesel promo um, saying it's not going to last long. He's going to go for the knockout. This is a very Kevin Nash-like promo. Um, how he came to be known later on his very cocky persona. The only real difference between this and any of his NWO Kevin Nash promos is that he's putting a lot of diesel and car puns in there. Um, both reference the winner facing the British Bulldog the next month at Survivor Series as well. Jim Cornette's now with Ted DiBiase, Sid and the British Bulldog, acting as though he wasn't interviewed with the other team earlier when asked by Todd Pettengale. Uh, then HBK and Ahmed Johnson walk in and Todd grins like a fucking schoolgirl at Shawn Michaels. Um, I'm hoping you all saw the picture I posted from that. 
We then go to the wildcard match, which I didn't quite get whether this was meant to be drawn at random or just Gorilla Monsoon's choice, but essentially he's mixed up the, the face heel alignment here. And we've got Owen Hart, Yoko Zuna, and Dean Douglas teaming with the solitary baby face of Razor Ramon to take on Sid, the British Bulldog, Shawn Michaels, and Ahmed Johnson for an even 2-2 two two split there. Um, as Sid's making his entrance, the show's really dated here when a fan with a camera is attempting to line up a photo with Sid and JR tells him to save the film. That really tells you what era we're walking into here. Um, Ahmed Johnson for his entrance comes out and he's absolutely dripping wet. Uh, Mr. Perfect calls his nose a double garage, which is probably not okay. Uh, and Vince McMahon pretty much comes all over himself during Shawn Michaels' entrance, including the line of the night, he's all man. Okay, I'm gonna leave that one there. Owen Hart and Shawn Michaels do get us started for a really awesome quick start. Uh, Shawn skins the cat and then locks his legs around Owen Hart and pulls him outside the ring. Um, and spanks Jim Cornette with his tennis racket on the outside. Again, folks, he's all man. Um, Owen Hart and the British Bulldog. Uh, sorry, Owen Hart comes back in with a belly-to-belly -belly suplex. Lost my train of thought completely there um, before Dean Douglas gets in. It's a nice double-aged suplex as well. And then Sean comes off the top with a moonsault to a standing Douglas for a two-count. Ahmed Johnson comes in and hits a sort of scissor-like kick onto Owen Hart and then Dean Douglas. Yokozuna comes in, Dean Douglas comes in, uh, we get a chin lock, Ahmed hits a nice power slam and presses Sean onto Dean. Dean argues with Razor Ramon who punches him. This allows Sean to roll him up. One, two, three, Dean Douglas is out of the match. So already the dissension between the teammates has cost one of them a spot in the match. The British Bulldog and Owen Hart do get into the ring now and before they lock up they both put out a left hand for a left-handed handshake, and as they go to grip hands, both of them throw punches, attempting to get the cheap shot on the other. British Bulldog hits a sick monkey flip on Owen Hart, really sends him flying, before Owen Hart comes back with a nice heel kick for a two count. Uh, and then Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon get in. The crowd are going nuts before they touch, uh, which was a really cool, I always like to see that. And they're both sort of looking to the sky, signal, uh, talking, you know, not talking about, sort of miming the actions of the ladder match. This is after the second one in this uh, in SummerSlam of this year, so they've already had two classics by this stage. Razor gets on the offense with a big clothesline before Sean fires back. Apologies, my dog dogs went for a fight there. Shawn Michaels hits a back elbow forearm and a patented kip up before dropping his head for a backdrop, which allows Razor Ramon to put his legs around Sean's head and then pose for the Razor's edge while Shawn Michaels doesn't move, wrestling logic, um, and he does get hit with the Razor's edge. Ahmed, though, comes in and breaks up the count in a not very babyface-like move and does earn himself some booze. Um, Mr. Fuji spotted on the outside and... and Rest in peace, but he's looking really old at this point. I was surprised he was still around, to be honest with you. Razor and Sean have a clash of heads. This allows some tags to be made. Sid comes in and hits a hip toss and a double clothesline. Sid goes up top, but Razor does get back to his feet and press slam him off for a two count. Um, Sid then hits an awesome one-arm chokeslam on Razor before tagging Sean, insisting that he comes in and finishes him off. Um, who Sid 
picks up Razor and holds him. And in the most predictable spot of the night, Sean goes for a super kick, but Razor ducks and he nails Sid with sweet chin music. Razor then goes for the pin on Sid. The British Bulldog comes in and breaks it up, but then leaves and Razor goes for the pin again and gets a three count. Despite the fact that Sid had actually tagged Shawn Michaels to do the super kick, therefore it wasn't legal, it was a really poorly planned spot, this one. Sid then powerbombs Shawn after being eliminated. The Bulldog comes in and stomps on Razor, and they're both down for a while. So we've got some selling here from Shawn and Razor. Razor gets over to Sean and gets a two count before Owen Hart comes back in. Hits a backbreaker, a backdrop, tags in Yoko, hits some forearms and a huge corner whip before going into a nerve hold for a while. Tags Owen back in who hits a suplex and misses the top rope headbutt, allowing Ahmed to come in and clear house. Hitting a Pearl River plunge and Owen Hart for a three count. This rings Razor back in, who hits a nice bulldog. Ahmed Johnson, though, fires back with a spine buster and then stupidly goes to the ropes and sticks his arms in the air to celebrate in the middle of the match. So Razor does what he does, comes up behind him and Razor's edges him. He got what he deserved there for being a fucking idiot. The bulldog comes in, though, and attacks Razor um, and then Razor fires back with an SOS. As the Sid, uh, as Sid the 123 Kid and Ted DiBiase all come out, the kid distracts Razor, the bulldog hits a big bulldog slam, gets a three count, and Razor has been eliminated. This leaves us with Yokozuna up against the three members of the other team, Sean Michaels, Ahmed Johnson, and the British Bulldog. Um, so he comes in and slams Sean early, hits a leg drop, but then misses the bonsai drop. This allows Sean to tag out to Ahmed Johnson. Comes in and slams Yoko, but the bulldog breaks up the pin for some reason. Sean and Ahmed both nail the bulldog, then Sean hits sweet chin music on Yoko and Ahmed splashes him for the three count, strangely allowing Ahmed Johnson, the British Bulldog and Shawn Michaels all to survive, which is what would have happened without the beatdown on the Bulldog had he just let the first pin go through. Um, cluster of a match, really, really hard to follow and even writing my notes and watching the match I was struggling to figure out who was on whose team at times, um, but the action was good, it had star power, I'm not going to slate it too much because there was a lot of good for it as well. We then go to another hype video for Bret the Hitman Hart up against Diesel for the WWF Championship before bringing us to our main event. Before the match gets underway, both Diesel and Bret Hart take a turnbuckle cover off one of the corners each, and then Bret goes after the leg, but Diesel pounds away on him and goes, puts him in the corner and starts nailing him with some corner knees, giving his, according to Jim Cornette's count, one of his five moves. He also does the hair whip, so that gets us to two out of the five there early. He basically pummels Bret, really bad, uh, beats on him. Brett actually bails out of the ring, but Diesel follows him and throws him under the rail. Uh, I'm sat here with my daughter Mika and she says to me, Daddy, he's strong, but the other one just landed on his boobs. And that's pretty astute commentary for what happened during the match, so I put that in there as well. We go back in and Brett once again bails and Diesel follows him. He's very aggressive early on here. Throws Brett into the steps, slams him into the post, gets a steel chair and nails Brett in the back. Uh, very aggressive. It is a no DQ match too, I, I forgot to mention. Um, gets back in and corner whips and a short clothesline. It's all Diesel early. To a bit of a mixed response as he calls for the jackknife to finish it off. As he goes for the jackknife, Brett hangs under the leg and then gets a hold of Diesel's arm and begins to bite it. So, so showing some aggression here. He goes on the attack with some eye rakes before going to the knee, stomping it, uh, snapping it, putting on a figure four around the rope, uh, around the, the ring post, sorry. Also putting on a regular figure four in the middle of the ring, but when Diesel gets to the ropes, the referee calls for the, for the break, despite the fact that it's a no DQ match. Um, 
Diesel gets back on the attack, but Brett grabs the leg again and wraps it around the ring post this time. And then in a pretty innovative spot, gets a, an audio cable and ties Diesel's leg to the post while he's inside the ring so he can't really move. So that was pretty cool. Diesel does get to his feet and Brett hits him with a second rope clothesline um, and then gets a chair and nails the back and the leg of Diesel uh, before going up to the top rope and getting crutched and then press slammed off of it. Diesel manages to untie his leg and hits a sidewalk slam followed by an Irish whip to Brett to the corner who goes chest first into the exposed buckle so that was a really cool looking spot. Brett's sort of draped over the middle of the second rope and Diesel goes to run the other ropes to run and jump on his back but he limps the whole way and just does a standing jump onto him so that was some pretty good selling there by Diesel. He snake eyes Brett on one of the non-exposed buckles then picks him up and goes to do it on one of the exposed buckles but Brett blocks that and slams Diesel's head into the exposed buckle himself, hits a clothesline for a two count, a second rope bulldog for a two count and a Russian leg sweep for a two count. He clotheslines Diesel over the top rope but then misses a plancher, climbs under the apron but Diesel knocks him off through the announce table in what I believe may have been the first ever table bump on pay-per-view in WWF history. The announcers are stunned, the crowd's stunned. If you watch this, um, actually look at the crowd because Brett's on the apron, Diesel knocks him off through the table and Dozens and dozens of people sprint out of their seat to get to the barricade to look. They are in awe of what just happened. And it was a really cool looking spot as well. Diesel himself actually sells a lot of shock here and doesn't know what to do. He goes to the outside, looks over Brett, but again he's hesitant, doesn't know what to do. Eventually he does pick Brett up and he throws him into the ring. But he gets into the ring and hesitates some more and he just takes that fraction too long. Brett sees the opportunity, gets him into a small package and gets the one, two, three for the win and a third reign with the WWF title for Brett the Hitman Hart. Diesel, however, is incensed and attacks referee Earl Hebner and then jackknifes Brett Hart to big booze, signifying Diesel's heel turn. Referees come out and Diesel beats up three of them instantly before picking up Brett and delivering a second jackknife powerbomb. He drops the belt over Brett, raises his own arm before leaving. The crowd booing him here obviously, um, bit of a poor way to start Brett's title reign but the storyline itself is pretty good and could potentially lead to a rematch down the line if they want to go in that direction. We get a bit of a recap video of the pay-per-view before the commentary team come back and discuss the ending with Diesel as Brett slowly, um, after selling the beat down, does get to his feet with the aid of referees and officials and that's how we go off the air for the pay-per-view. The match itself is very, very good and well worth a watch and um, as a special um, sort of bonus here, I'm going to put in some comments comments from Brett and from Diesel about working together um, and some specifically about this match as well so you'll be able to get a feel for how they felt about this one too. This was actually their third match together on pay-per-view. Um, before Diesel got to the, the very main event he got a shot at Brett's title while he was the IC champ at the King of the Ring pay-per-view in 1994. They had a match at the Royal Rumble pay-per-view earlier in this year which ended in I think a double DQ with a lot of interference from different people and then this was the third time out this time here. So I'll put in some clips and see what they thought about the match. Right. Where Brett, where Brett had that methodical psychology of, you know, I'm the wrestler. Yeah. I'm going to It's David and Goliath. Yep. I, I need to get Goliath off his feet. I'm going to methodically, but I'm going to go toe to toe with him if I have to. But you know, and Jim Ross was was always the best because he would always tell that story of. 
you know, Bret Hart when he's when he when he gets the big man off off his feet, he's got the advantage. But when Diesel's vertical, Bret Hart's in trouble. You know, he, so we just had that real easy psychology to tell that real simple David and Goliath story. And Bret, you know, Bret was stiff. You know, Brett worked stiff. His shit looked good. Everything he looked he worked snug. Yes, he did. Yeah, he did. And the thing was, I wouldn't let another another five foot eleven guy in this business give me a backbreaker. But I did him because it worked. Yeah, that's Bret Hart. Right. He, he, he had he had his comeback, and it was just like it. The ebb and flow fit, and I I, I watched it back one night, and I said. It doesn't look stupid. It stays in. Well, you know, I always loved this match. It was, um, I always liked Kevin. I had a lot of respect for him. And I, you know, when they made him champion, I really wanted to do all I could to help him be the kind of like, okay, you're going to make this guy the the franchise guy and a guy who's going to take kind of take over my spot. And, you know, I had no hard feelings about that. I I kind of stepped back and tried all I could to help him be the guy that they needed and uh i really looking back on i think what they what was really going on was that they needed a big because uh, wcw had just signed hogan or hogan was with wcw by then right <clears throat> and so they needed a big giant they like instead of keeping the belt on me they went no nah, we need a big guy to compete with hogan and so they decided to groom kevin nash and i've always said that kevin was a little early it was a little too soon for him. He just wasn't quite ready for that yet. He was, I would say, about a year or two years away. Like when, when he, two years later, he has had more experience and he was better equipped to actually be the star of the show and uh, be the, you know, the, the the guy that they needed. But uh, it wasn't my place to to make those decisions or you know they when they come in and say this is what we want. It's like I was always a team guy. And so I really tried my hardest to make him and establish him and give him the credibility he needed, and uh, including the matches I had, you know, I had him at the the King of the Ring before he won the title. I had him at the right after he won the title. I wrestled him at I think the Royal Rumble, and I I had some different scenarios with him all the time. But when we they decided to pull the plug on him and uh, they were taking the title from him uh, and gonna put it back on me. Um, you know, I had a lot of respect for him, and I had great empathy for him. I felt, you know, he was uh, like me, another one of those guys that, you know, they promised him when they put the belt on him that they were going to keep him champion for a long time. They were going to, you know, not to worry. They're going to, you know, he's going to be their guy for a long time. And, you know, and then they pull the plug on you. It's it's a little hard to swallow. It's like, geez, I, I, I didn't see it coming. And he never saw it coming. And uh, the same thing happened to me quite a few times. It got where every time I won the belt, I... I started to realize that there's no promises here that you could be champion for 10 minutes, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> but anyway, going back to the match, it was like, I really wanted to have a classic with Kevin. I wanted it to be a great match. And, um, I think that's what I love about the match was that, um, you know, you got a guy seven feet tall and you got another guy that's six feet tall and, you know, two champions or one's a former champion. And my, and it's like, how do you want to tell this story? And, uh, you know, I think the way we told that story, it was a real battle. It was a real hard knockdown, drag, drag out kind of battle, and everything looked pretty solid. I mean, there's little things in that match that uh, are very believable. And the, Kevin, um, you know, he was uh, 
he was actually, a, to me, it was a really good wrestler. I've always had a lot of respect for him as a worker. He's a big guy that wanted to, he wanted to have a good match. He, he was a little reluctant. I remember when I talked to him, originally gave him the, the finish because it was my finish, the uh, table spot, going through the table. Yeah. And I said to Vince, I said, you know, there's something about if you went through the table, if you did it in a suspenseful way where no one, no one knew he was going to go crashing through the table or that I was going to go crashing through the table. And I told him about how he sort of launched me backwards through the table and we break the table. It would stun everybody and it would actually mean something where people would really believe that I was really hurt and that it was a, a moment of complete shock that, and especially back then, like now you see guys go through tables all the time and trust me, nobody goes through a table like the one I went through. That table was solid, totally, uh, you know, they, they actually gimmicked that table and then they glued it back together or reinforced it with a piece of wood underneath. And I remember going, that table was indestructible when I went crashing through it. It was such a stiff table. Yeah. You know, it was, it was one of those kind of matches. Kevin was in an awkward spot being a guy seven feet tall, wrestling a guy my size. Because it, yeah, it doesn't take very long. It takes a couple seconds in the match. And people start cheering for me, cheering for me, and they get behind me. You know, all I had to do was take a front turnbuckle and a couple of things, and all of a sudden I'm like, I'm lying in the ring, wounded, a wounded soldier kind of thing, and the crowd's going to get right behind Bret Hart. And there goes Kevin's push. Like, like it's so hard then, because once you become the heel, then it's like you're a bad guy, and the whole match has a different direction. And the way to, to prevent that from happening was that Kevin and me would kind of play tennis. Like, we'd go back and forth. I'd stop him. I'd take a little heat up on him, but not enough where it's like it started to... Because, like, it can work the other way around. If Kevin sells too much, of like, being the smaller guy, if I start beating on Kevin and really working him over, people are going to start cheering me because they want to see... And they're going to start thinking that he's a big flake, you know, for letting a guy beat on him too much. So it's you can, I can't beat on him for very long. Otherwise, he starts to lose momentum too. And at the same time, if he starts beating on me too much, it's like he becomes a bully. Right. And there's a real thin line there how you handle that. And the way to handle that in a, wrest, in a wrestling psychology is to go a little bit for me, a little bit for you, a little bit for me, a little bit for you, and you just keep playing tennis back and forth. And that's how we built that match. It was nobody really had any momentum till the end. And when the end came, it was a, a, a very sort of um, different finish. No one had seen it before. It was unique, especially for that time period. And caught everybody off guard. And it was like, oh, he put his guard down and I small packaged him. Now, the two power bombs he gave me at the end were like super stiff. Um, I think that, that kind of saved him really a lot stiff. of face too, though. Like, what? you know, his showing his frustration and still, you know, got to keep his character alive because he just, you know, he kind of outsmarted him there in the end. But there's uh, there's little things in that match. Just, there was some part in that match where I I remember biting his hand. Yeah, he was going for the jackknife and you grabbed him. and Yeah, and, and my feet hit the ropes yep. and then I bit his arm out of it and then I kicked him. Yeah, Mr. If you just was on, was on commentary and he was making a big deal about that. Yeah. But when I watch that match back, when I see that just that little spot, I know it's nothing special, but I go that moment, that little spot where I bite his hand or his arm or whatever it is, I'm biting him and how he sells it. It looks it's it's so credible and so real. You go, ah, you know, if he was biting my hand like that, you know, I just it just it's the little details of realism that can make a match um, 
stand out. And, you know, that whole match from him, you know, running me into the posts and uh, even that sort of, we had a spot where I had to tie his feet up with the XLR cable. Yeah. It was a microphone cable. I was, you know, the idea was, you know, at those, in the, in those days was like, we got to do something different. So we don't just do the same old thing every night that everyone sees. And, uh, that was an idea we had, and unfortunately, what happened was that the rope, the cable, was too short, and it was really hard to tie that knot. And when I tied that knot, it was tied like a real knot. He couldn't get that knot undone. Yeah, you double knotted it, and I was like, "That's kind of mean. That does look hard to un- untie." And uh, but it, so it kind of messed up. If I had a little bit more um, r- length with that rope, a little more room with it, I could have done. You know, done it would have been a simple spot, simple. But you know, we we it was. I tip my hat to that kind of stuff. I go, you know, at least we were trying to do something different. You know, we tried. It was an idea, and it doesn't necessarily stand out as a great idea, but it was an idea. And I, I give points for being different and being trying to come up with something that people haven't seen before to mark that match as different than the one we had before that, which was different from the one before that. And there's, you get points for stuff like that, even if it doesn't necessarily come across. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you look at a hardcore or no disqualification match now, and a couple things struck me uh, compared to a hardcore match now or a no DQ match now, as opposed to the one you had with uh, with Kevin here. And that is, uh, first of all, like a lot of hardcore matches now, no DQ matches. There's a lot of plunder, kendo sticks, trash cans, all kinds of stuff. I really appreciated how uh, you you two worked together to make the ring really a weapon. Does that make sense? Like you didn't have yeah, to. Yeah, and we just used the props around us. Yeah, I really appreciate you know, that. The, yeah. the, the stairs, the railings, the, the cable on the floor, uh, the bell, anything like that. For me, it was a, it was a good, uh, a real good class. To me, that's a classic match. Um, you know, I know a lot of people watch different matches with different, uh, you know, different guys I've wrestled and stuff. They're all kind of different, but i always thought that match with kevin nash was a was a classic it wasn't just a good match it was a it was a great match it was very different than anything we'd done before and uh you know i think if you want to watch a real classic you know people throw the word classic around all the time but that was a classic and i know that um whenever i've talked to kevin nash over the years he's always said that was his favorite match that he ever had in his whole life and uh i would uh stand by that match as being a classic So that's how Brett and Diesel felt about their main event match on the night. But would it be enough to tip the tide in favor of the WWF and win the the battle for the night here? Let's find out. So we start with crowd heat, and the the winner for this one for me clearly is the WWF. The fact that Barry Horowitz was getting big chants from the crowd tells me that the WWF are doing less with uh, doing more with less, not less with more. Um, WCW had by far the bigger roster at this time, much better roster, bigger names, but the WWF had all their guys over. Marty Jannetty was hugely over. The crowd were massively into the main event. The Razor Kid storyline was over. Um, not to say no one in in WCW got good reactions, but by far WWF had the more feverish crowd. Um, Characters, as you may have guessed from what I just said there, definitely goes to WCW. The fact that they could stick 60 guys in the main event is a testament to the roster they have. Not all of them are well-known WCW guys, but most of them are, so that's pretty impressive. Um, And a lot of big-name talent in there as well. Um, Some really good players, um, big names in the wrestling industry. Not a problem there at all. Production value is going to swing back to the WWF. This one's been mostly with WCW lately, but the way they handled the main event wasn't good. 
um, having a split screen with three different screens, three different commentary teams, and not clearly explaining when people would go in and out of the other rings um, didn't help. And also, it is very difficult to put on a, a, a pay-per-view with three rings when the two of them aren't going to be in use for all but one of the matches. So it hurt it a little bit. The WWF just did what they always do, and that was fine. Storyline... I'm going with the WWF because their storylines made sense and paid off. Even though the WCW ones could have had higher stakes and bigger names, they didn't handle them right. I still can't tell you if Macho Man's arm was really injured or not. I know I could look it up, but I should be able to tell that by watching the show. Um, you can say kayfabe, but if they're going to bring the Observer on, I should be able to tell definitely. Or I should storyline know if it's hurt one way or another. Um, WWF paid off the Undertaker-Mabel angle while still leaving room for Undertaker to get his big blow-off match with Mabel. They continued the Kid and Razor angle, which was really hot, and injected Sid in there as well to give some muscle for DiBiase and the Kids back up. Brett and Diesel was an awesome story, really good match, um, and opened up the possibility for future matches down the line. Sure, Michaels was kept strong, as was Ahmed Johnson. The Bulldog looked like a bit of a goofus, but didn't get beat, knowing he's going to be main eventing the next pay-per-view. So storylines go to the WWF, um, which gives us match quality. Can WCW save the day with this one? And unfortunately, when you compare the main events, they really can't. World War Three was a clusterfuck. I had high hopes for it, really wanted it to be awesome, because it just looked so incredible. But Brett and Diesel stole the show, an awesome match, and the undercard was pretty good as well. I've got to be honest, there was no Big Bubba Rogers up against Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and we got the likes of Razor Ramon, the 1-2-3 kid, Marty Jannetty, and The Undertaker all on the undercard. So WWF wins this one pretty handily, um, won the crowd, won the buy rate, and won this prestigious award here today as well. And pretty fitting. Um, Survivor Series 95 is actually a pretty good show. It, outside of just winning this battle head-to-head, -head, I'd strongly recommend if you've not seen it, go back and watch it. It is one of the better mid-90s pay-per-views I've seen so far, so very enjoyable. That'll do it for this episode. Um, there's going to be a few cool things coming up. I talked at the start about some movie reviews, so they're going to be coming in the pipeline. We've got a Clash of the Champions King of the Ring episode coming up, which I'm hoping to have a guest host on for. Um, I've got some interviews coming up on some of my next couple of shows, and there will be some more guest hosts coming up in the near future as well. So a lot of fun things happening. Um, please do keep in touch, and if you've not been in touch, get in touch, because I am always looking for people to contribute to the show. So even if it's only a small, you know, five-minute thing, it's always good to have extra voices on here. I know mine for an hour plus can be a little bit tedious to me. Uh, maybe not to everyone that doesn't have to hear it all day, or maybe so, but whatever it is, I, I prefer to have someone on here as regularly as I can, really. Um, other than that, you can find me on all the same channels as I mentioned at the start. Please do keep listening, downloading, sharing, and definitely leave us a review so we can get the word out there to more people if you can. And we will see you next time. We'll probably get straight back to Raw and Nitro for a couple of episodes just to get the ball rolling again before we go into a few different things over the Christmas New Year period. Catch you next time. Yeah, nigga. I'm still fucking with you. Still waters run deep. Still Snoop Dogg and D.R.A. Nah, nah, nigga. Guess who's back? Still. Still doing that shit, Andre? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Check me out. It's still Dre Day, nigga. AK, nigga. Though I've grown a lot, can't keep it home a lot. Cause when I frequent the spots that I'm known to rock, you hear the bass from the
the truck when I'm on the block Ladies, they pay homage, but haters say Trey fell off How nigga, my last album was the chronic They wanna know if he still got it They say raps change, they wanna know how I feel about it If you ain't up on pain Dr. Trey is the name, I'm ahead of my gang Still puffin' my leaf, still fuck with the beats Still not loving police Still rock my khakis with a cuff and a crease Still got love for the streets Reppin' 213 Still the beats bang, still doing my thing Since I left ain't too much change Still, I'm representing for them gangsters all across the world Still, hitting them corners and them lolos, girl Still, taking my time to perfect the beat And I still got love for the streets It's the D.R.E. I'm representing for them gangsters all across the world Still, hitting them corners and them lolos, girl Still, taking my time to perfect the beat And I still got love for the streets It's the D.R.E. Since the last time you heard from me, I lost some friends Well, hell, me and Snoop, we dipping again I Kept my ear to the streets, signed Eminem He's triple platinum, doing 50 a week Still, I stay close to the heat And even when I was close to defeat, I rose to my feet My life's like a soundtrack, I wrote to the beat Street rap like Cali weed, I smoke till I'm asleep Wake up in the AM, compose a beat I bring the fire till you're soaking in your seat It's not a fluke, it's been tried, I'm the truth Since turn out the lights from the world-class wrecking crew I'm still at it, after mathematics In the home of drive-bys and acmatics Swap meets, sticky green and bad traffic I dip through, then I get still I'm representing for the gangsters all across the world Still, hitting them corners and them lolos, girl Still, taking my time to perfect the beat And I still got love for the streets It's the D.R.E. I'm representing for the gangsters all across the world Still, hitting them corners and them lolos, girl Still, taking my time to perfect the beat And I still got love for the streets It's the D.R.E. It ain't nothing but mohawk shit Another classic CD for y'all to vibe with Whether you're cooling on the corner with your fly bitch yeah, Lay back in the shack, play this track I'm representing for the gangsters all across the world Still, hitting the corners and them lolos, girl I'll break your neck, damn near put your face in your lap Niggas try to be the king, but the ace is back So when you ain't up on things Dr. Dre be the name, still running the game Still, got it wrapped like a mummy Still ain't trippin', love to see young blacks get money Spend time out the hood, take they moms out the hood Hit my boys off with jobs, no more living hard Barbecues every day, driving fancy cars Still gon' get my still, regards I'm representin' for the gangsters all across the world Still, hitting them corners and them lolos, girl Still, taking my time to perfect the beat And I still got love for the streets, it's the D.R.E. I'm representin' for the gangsters all across the world Still, hitting them corners and them lolos, girl Still, taking my time to Perfect the beat, and I still got love for the streets. It's the DR. Representing for the gangsters all across the world. Still hitting them corners in the lolos, girl. Still taking my time to perfect the beat, and I still got love for the streets. It's the DRE. Right back up in your motherfucking ass. Nine five plus four pennies. Add that shit up. DRE. Right back up on top of things. Smoke some with your dog. No stress, no seeds, no stems, no sticks. Some of that real sticky, icky, icky.